God's Word comes to us tonight from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I invite you to turn there. 2 Corinthians. For some reason, I'm drawn to books that are the second that start with C. Second Corinthians chapter 2, I'll be reading verses 5 through 11. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever held a grudge? You know how it goes. Someone offended you or committed an injustice against you. The other person moved on and forgot about it. Everyone else forgot, but you didn't. You became bitter. Well, how did that work out for you? Paul, in this passage, refused to hold a grudge. He knew it was a tool of Satan to create unnecessary division and despair. Well, where does your mind and heart go next after thinking about grudges? If you're anything like me, it's guilt and shame. You know you shouldn't hold a grudge. You know you should forgive. But Paul in this passage also refused to allow shame to fester. You see, he knew it was a tool of Satan to create unnecessary division and despair. Instead, Paul would bring us before the face of Christ and find the solution in the gospel. You see, the gospel is the solution to holding a grudge because it teaches us to extend forgiveness. And the gospel is the solution to festering shame because the gospel invites us to receive forgiveness. We'll consider the material of this passage under three headings. First, when discipline works. Second, how the gospel creates a community of forgiveness before the face of Christ. And third, how the gospel of forgiveness fights Satan's strategies. 
So first, when discipline works. You might know from the context of this letter of 2 Corinthians that there's some conflict between Paul and this church. In large part, it seems the conflict has to do with questions over his apostolic authority. Should we trust him? They said he wasn't a good preacher. They said he was a flip-flopper. He says yes and no at the same time. As we found out in chapter 1, because Paul so loved this congregation, he wanted to visit them twice as he traveled through. So he talks about his travel plans. He loves them so much, he says, I'm passing through, I'm going to stop and see you. And then on my way back, I'll stop in again. I want to see you as much as I can. And then we come to find out that second time he didn't drop in. Why? Because the first trip was painful. Now we don't know exactly what happened, but we see him using this language of pain several times. If you have it there in front of you, you can see it at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. In verse 2, he talks about causing pain and the one to whom he caused pain. And he goes on like this. There's a lot of pain happening. There's some conflict with this church. And of course, it isn't physical pain he's talking about, but emotional pain. Something like grief, sorrow. And we see the opposite in verse 3, where he talks about joy. There should be joy, not this grief. So instead of visiting them that second time, we understand that he wrote them a letter to deal with this conflict. You see it in verse 9, as we read. This is why I wrote. He refers to a, a previous letter he wrote to them. He delivered this letter to the Corinthians by the hand of Titus. Now naturally, he was eager to find out from Titus how it went. He wrote a letter to try to mend the relationship. Titus, how did it go? Did they receive my letter? Would they receive his authority as an apostle? Just after our text in verses 12 and 13, he talks about he was not at rest until he found Titus. Well, it doesn't come until later in chapter 7 of this letter that he explains what happened. He says he was glad to have caused them pain and grief from his letter, not because he revels in the grief itself, but because this godly grief was effective in producing repentance. So indeed, Paul's application of church discipline achieved its goal repentance. Now a number of commentators believe the case of church discipline here that he refers to is the same one from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There we find there's a man practicing sexual immorality and the church at large is doing nothing about it, even approving of it. 
Paul rather forcefully tells them that they must practice church discipline, to tell this man that he must repent, to stop practicing this sin. Paul tells them to put this person out of a church fellowship and even to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Some rather strong language that might jar us a little bit. Hand him over to Satan. That is, when someone's heart is hard and they refuse to repent, in a way we make use of Satan as a tool to break them down, to bring them to repentance. But come now to this point in time at 2 Corinthians, and indeed we have come to the place of repentance. So Paul says to welcome this man back into the fellowship of the church. The discipline has worked. He's come to repentance. So reaffirm your love for this person. Tell him he's forgiven. Now, whether this really does refer to the same person in 1 Corinthians 5, we can't be certain. Some see here a different situation since it certainly seems from the context of chapter 2 that this is more about interpersonal conflict with Paul. Like I said, they were critical of him. He's not a great public speaker. He's not much to look at. Why should I listen to him? So what is it? Is it the sexual immorality or is it insubordination to an apostle? Well, my preferred solution in these cases is just to say it's both. It's conceivable that this man in sexual immorality did eventually listen to the admonishment to stop sin, but perhaps he continued to hold a grudge against Paul. Okay, Paul, I'll change my life. But why are you bossing me around? Who do you think you are? I could imagine that happening. Well, whatever the case, Paul indicates that it's over. He's repented. Paul forgives the man, and the church should too. We let him out to the influence of Satan, but we must stop that now, or he will be overcome with pain and sorrow. We see this word in verse 8, reaffirm. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. It actually has very formal connotations, suggesting an official action by the church. Receive him back, officially. The church indeed acted with authority in excommunicating him. And likewise, they act with authority in receiving him back. But you see, the informal practice of church members should match that formal announcement of the church. Turn to him and forgive him and comfort him. Give the guy a hug. Tell him you're glad to see him back. One principle that arises in this context is that what happens with one person in the church affects the whole church. It's a body. When one part suffers, 
They all do. And so Paul talks about this punishment by the majority in verse 6. A punishment by the majority. You see, the church as a whole carried out discipline against this individual. Because we care for one another, when one is caught in sin, we all get involved. And this means church members don't get to hole up in private. The church bears the authority of Christ for your own good. Sin is deceitful, like a poisonous root that spreads. Hebrews chapter 12 explains this, saying, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Twice later in 2 Corinthians, Paul will explain that Christ gave him authority not to tear down, but to build up. And the church continues to exercise this authority of Christ, which is for the good of the members. And when discipline works, the church is to reaffirm your love. Well, secondly, let's consider how the gospel creates a community of forgiveness before the face of Christ. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ creates a certain kind of community. And it's that aspect of punishment by the majority that's informal. It has to do with our relationships with one another. Imagine, if you will, that you're this guy. You're this guy who's committed the sin but has repented and is back in church. And these letters that the apostle wrote, they would have been read in church just like this. So you're that guy who brought conflict with an apostle upon the whole church. And you're sitting there in church Paul's talking about you. How awkward is that? And you feel everyone's eyes on you, kind of assuming they're judging you. So another aspect of what Paul means by this punishment by the majority is simply this embarrassment from having the whole congregation know that you're that guy, that an apostle had to write a letter to your church about. But then, words of encouragement. Paul has this pastoral sensibility, knowing full well this guy might be in the church. Paul tells the church to reaffirm their love for this individual. Now, if that was you, couldn't you just feel the weight being lifted? Going from everyone in the room looking at you, kind of annoyed, to having an apostle tell everyone in the room to love you, to receive you back. You see, Paul holds no grudge, and the church shouldn't either. You see, the gospel creates a community of forgiveness 
I like to say that the ground beneath Calvary is level ground. By that I mean as we're standing there, looking up to that bloody cross, and realize the depth of sin in ourselves, and then look at your neighbor next to you. It's level ground. I don't look down upon him. We're all level. We're all the same. The sin committed against me pales in comparison to the sin I've committed against God. Any self-righteousness I'm tempted to have towards others fades away. Before the cross, before the face of Christ. And Paul uses that sort of language in verse 10 here. He talks about being in the presence of Christ. This is a theme that comes up repeatedly in 2 Corinthians, this idea of quorum Deo. It's a Latin phrase that means before the presence of God, before his face. Not only is that a pledge of, God, of Paul's honesty and sincerity, see, he, he says, I recognize I'm in the presence of God, and I'm telling you the truth. Not only that, but it's a summons to forgive. When you recognize that your life is laid bare before God's face in the presence of Christ, you simply cannot walk in hypocrisy. When we consider ourselves in relation to Christ, standing as sinners beneath the cross, reminded anew of how much we've been forgiven, how can we hold a grudge against our neighbor? Paul simply couldn't hold a grudge when he looked to the compassionate face of Christ towards him and his sin. This is indeed a faithful saying worthy of acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. So we forgive one another. We forgive as Christ forgave us. The gospel creates this community of forgiveness before the face of Christ. Now, it's important to say that depending on the nature of the sin, there can still be practical consequences. Reconciliation doesn't necessarily mean the relationship goes back to normal, like nothing happened. You see, part of the humility of true repentance is to accept the consequences. I'm not talking about eternal consequences, but only consequences for this life. For example, if a minister commits a heinous sin, he may be forgiven. He may repent and find forgiveness from God and the church, but there's a practical consequence. He doesn't go back to the ministry. So you see, there's a difference between holding a grudge and practicing wisdom. 
We should exercise wisdom in protecting people from their own weaknesses, especially when their own weakness could result in sin against another person. What these sort of protections should be done in a way that doesn't heap shame upon a person. There should be a welcome, an affirmation of love. The emphasis that protections go in place to protect one another for our good. To protect us all from the deceitfulness of sin. We do these sorts of things because we do not want to be outwitted by Satan. Which leads us to the third point to consider how forgiveness fights the strategies of Satan. Paul says here that we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes. He says we should take care lest we be outwitted by him. This is where books like C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters can be useful. If you're not familiar, it's his imagination about a conversation between demons and their scheming against the church. We are not to be ignorant of Satan's schemes. It's good to think about these things. His attacks come when we are ignorant. Now we need to understand that there is an already but not yet sort of thing with Satan's power. He is already defeated, but not yet fully. Think about Heidelberg question and answer one. It says that Jesus has delivered us from the tyranny of the devil. He has delivered us. That is accomplished. He is a defeated foe, yet he continues to hurl accusations. Jump ahead in the Catechism to 123 when it's talking about the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. It explains that when we pray thy kingdom come, we're asking God to destroy the devil's work until your kingdom fully comes. So you see, Christ's kingdom is already here, and yet not fully here. In the same way, the devil is defeated. Jesus has dealt the decisive blow. I picture it like the slow motion videos of someone getting punched in the face. You know, it's like this, and maybe a tooth goes flying or something. That's Jesus to Satan. And as he's falling backwards to the mat, he's flailing punches just to hit anything he can. He is decisively defeated. It's all just last-ditch efforts. But he is on his way down. Furthermore, when we pray that God would not lead us into temptation, the Catechism teaches us that we're praying against our three sworn enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
who never stops attacking us. And yet we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit that we may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. So you notice those qualifiers. We do have victory, yet we're waiting for complete victory. So maybe that helps you as we think about how we have been indeed set free from Satan, yet continue to battle him. We might wonder why God allowed it this way. Well, I'd suggest that there's a benefit. It's that we get to participate in Christ's victory. There might be some benefit in reframing our thinking, seeing our problems in life like opportunities. But see, I'm not just talking about putting a positive spin on the problem. Paul has this wonderful statement in Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Yes, God will do it. The God of peace will do it. But it will be under your feet. You get to participate in Christ's victory. And if you want to stick it to Satan, one way to do that is to believe you're forgiven. Believe you're forgiven. It's very simple. An atmosphere of grace and forgiveness is not just for the big sins, the public ones that the whole church knows about. Satan would have you stuck in shame to keep you from knowing the joy of forgiveness for any sin. How can you get out of being stuck there? By hearing the words, you are forgiven. Hear it from a pulpit. Hear it from a fellow believer. You know, there was a, a time in my life when I was wallowing in guilt and shame. And God brought me to a place of repentance. He came, me, came to realize that I was trying to pay for my sin by wallowing in shame. Maybe that will make up for it. And God showed me I needed to repent of not repenting very well. That is, not believing I'm forgiven. It's very simple to stick it to Satan by believing you're forgiven. If you're conversing with a fellow believer and they express that sense of shame and regret in any shape or form, you can be the one to say to them, you know you're forgiven. Jesus paid for that, so you don't have to. We all need to hear from outside of ourselves this message of truth. You see, we need other people to reaffirm their love for us. So in conclusion, as you have God's indwelling spirit, may you be that person 
by his power to speak of forgiveness to one another. May you be that person on the receiving end to hear that in Christ you are forgiven. You see, we don't need to carry a grudge against one another because the gospel creates a community of forgiveness before the face of Christ. It invites us to extend forgiveness. And we don't need to fester in shame because the gospel invites us to move on from godly grief, to rejoice in forgiveness. So indeed, let us reaffirm our love to one another in the love of Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your word and for even inspiring through the Apostle Paul to write down these these things of unusual circumstances, his interpersonal conflict with the church, this very personal matter of a man in sin. But we thank you that it indeed instructs us of how to live amongst one another in the church, how to extend forgiveness to one another because we have been forgiven in Christ. Lord, help us by your Spirit to put these things into practice, to be reminded how great a salvation we have, that indeed each one of us is that chief of sinners, and so that when we look to our neighbor, we could extend forgiveness. Thank you for your love to us in Christ. May it overflow from our hearts. In our Savior's name, amen. I invite you to turn to number 469.